Let me begin with a question. Why would Jesus so hard on rich people? You know, I recently read an article by David McClister that, be, that asked that question as the premise of the article, and uh, he made some, I think, very salient points about uh, the overall teaching of Jesus on the aspect of riches. It's not hard to see that there were several occasions in which Jesus was hard on rich folks. He, uh, he did not uh, have many very good things to say about the, about the prospect of being materially wealthy. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said to his disciples, I say to you that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easy for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 16, verse 11, Jesus called money unrighteous wealth, as he told a parable there about a steward. In many of Jesus' parables, the rich men, the rich people, were the bad guys, so to speak. In the parable of Lazarus, the farmer about the farmer in, in Luke chapter 12. The parable of the sower, Jesus calls riches deceitful and identifies money there and the desire for money or at least the deception that money provides as a hindrance to even hearing and obeying the word of God in Luke chapter 8. Now there are a few, uh, I think there are a few rich people in Jesus' life and in his own ministry that uh, are good and do good. Uh, many of that uh, several on, on several occasions when that comes up, we recognize that those individuals who had wealth that were commended by God were commended by Jesus because they gave that wealth away or were willing to do that anyway, such as, Zac, as Zacchaeus. And Jesus commends the aspect of someone who has wealth being willing to give it away. In Luke chapter 14, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now when you look at that overall, you think, well, Jesus maybe, uh, you see, had a, a thing about rich people, or maybe he didn't really like rich people, but then we carry it through, and we'll talk about that, don't leave me there, but carry it through into the apostolic teaching we recognize, the principles that Jesus laid down, not only in his association with those who were wealthy, but his counsel to those who were wealthy, uh, took place as well further on in the apostolic message. In James chapter 2, James says, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? James himself later describes the rich as those who defraud those who work for them. They said that they cries out to God, the Lord of Sabaoth, that you have that the rich people have taken advantage of those who are not rich. And he says they murder the just in James chapter 5. So the question comes to mind when we look at both Jesus' ministry and even the teachings of the apostles on several occasions. What Jesus and apostles biased against rich people? Do what we recognize here, recognize that there are some religious, I think, um, commentators who take this very position that Jesus really didn't like rich people and really was taking the position that riches themselves were wrong. Was it a political thing, sometimes like what we see today, designed to put the poor man against the rich man, to rail against the 1% so that you see you get individuals uh, being divisive with one another? Was that Jesus' purpose? Is that why these things are said? Was, was Jesus' words and attitudes toward riches fueled by envy? The aspect that Jesus himself was not rich and so he didn't like people that were rich because he was envious of what they had. Well, I think certainly we discount a lot of that, or maybe all of that, from the standpoint of recognizing the character of our Lord. But I believe we also recognize, and the 
and what we're going to look at and what we're going to consider this morning. That Jesus' focus and Jesus' purpose in dealing with wealth and the possession of wealth was not political at all, as many times it is today. His words were not so much about social injustice as they were about the reality of very present and real spiritual danger. And what I mean by that is when Jesus talked about rich people and he said that there's real danger there and he even was willing to speak against wealth itself, he was not doing that for the sake of any social agenda. Jesus talked about wealth because it was a real spiritual danger to his disciples. And I think that's a perspective that we need to recognize. And I'm convinced that the negative approach about wealth in Scripture is mainly because money does pose an ongoing serious threat not to just a few of us, but to all of us. That godly lives are very much hampered by the presence and prosperity the presence of prosperity and wealth even among in our own lives. Now what I want to present this morning flows from our theme of 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I invite you to turn there in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But what I want to present to you this morning, I believe, moves in both directions. Just as the Apostle moves in both directions from the standpoint of understanding the danger that wealth provides. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we're supposed to be this month, that we're just now getting around to, we recognize earlier in chapter 6 that the Apostle warned those who desire to be rich in verse 9 that it was a perilous thing. And he talked about as well the love of money as being the root of all evil in verse 10. And we discussed this a few weeks ago, that striving to get more money and striving to have more things puts us in a very perilous position before God. And that, it, 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 as Paul mentions here, that this pursuit for physical things drowns men in destruction and perdition, verse 9. The last words of 1 Timothy, Paul addresses again what we might think of as the other side of that danger, that spiritual danger. Well, if I put myself in peril by seeking physical things and by gaining wealth and trying to acquire wealth, what if I already have it? What if I'm already prosperous and have already been successful or I've inherited money into my family and I'm already rich? What does the Lord say about people that are already rich? Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6, the apostle tells Timothy this, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, I'll begin by suggesting to you that if we analyze and diagram these three verses, and we're going to talk about these three verses over a period of a couple of lessons, but if we analyze and diagram these three verses, we find a common, I think, organization from the teachings of the Apostle Paul, and that is sometimes what we call this not-but construction. That what Paul says here is comprised of something that we are not to do, but rather something in contrast to that where they are to do. So it's not this, but it's this. And really, it's, if we look at it, this is comprised of two negative commands and five positive commands. So we just look at what Paul says to the rich. He's telling them more what to do than what not to do in terms of the text itself. But the idea that he commands the rich would show to suggest to us certainly that these things are not just a counsel to be taken or left off. These are not suggestions, but rather that Paul's presenting what he says about 
our approach to wealth here in the position of being absolutely essential. This is what the rich person must do and this is what the rich person must not do. Now this morning in the time we have, I'm going to take, I will consider the negative side of that. And that is what the rich person is not to do or what the rich person is not to be. How... What's the right way to be rich? If Jesus comes down so hard on rich people, is there a right way to be rich? Or if a person has riches, if they're wealthy, are they condemned? Is it a camel passing through the eye of a needle, an absolute impossibility for a person to get to heaven if he has wealth? Is wealth inherently wrong itself? The fact that Paul commands the proper execution of riches in the life of those who have wealth would tell us that not only that with God all things are possible as he as well answered the, the concern about the disciples but that there are practical ways in which spirituality can be borne out through physical resources that we can take unrighteous mammon and we can open up for ourselves eternal tabernacles before God if we have resources now he starts out by saying, command those who are rich in this present age. Now, I didn't lose you there, did I? <laughs> he said, well, the preacher's going to talk about people that are rich, so I can kind of tune out right now because if there's one thing I'm not, I'm not rich, right? Maybe that's what you're thinking, is that he's ta- is the, the apostle's really not talking about me in these passages. I may have a moderate problem with wanting more and trying to get ahead, But I'm certainly and obviously I'm not rich because there are a lot of folks out there that have a lot more money and a lot more stuff than I have. And yet I would suggest to you there's any part of this discussion from 1 Timothy chapter 6 about money that applies to the 21st century Christian that lives in America. It's this part where Paul says specifically, I'm talking about you folks that have stuff. Because we have stuff. And we are prosperous. We are prosperous people in any way that we measure it from the standpoint of where, how we compare it to the other people that live on this planet with us and certainly when we compare it to those who are considered to be rich in the first century in Paul's original audience. We are far more richer in material possessions than the majority of the rest of the world as we live in this country. And though we might very well designate ourselves as being poor or lower middle class or maybe even middle class itself when it comes to the overall picture of what it means to have possessions and have resources available to us we are rich so this is about us and these passages are certainly about us well what's Paul want us to do if we're rich if this is us then what's his command well he says to Timothy he says you command those who are rich in this world to not be haughty. Some translations use the word arrogant or some translations say high-minded. Now we have to not misread this because Paul's not saying that it's alright for poor people to be arrogant and it's bad for rich people to be arrogant. He's pointing out, I believe, as so many times Scripture does, particular attitudinal barriers that exist because of a person's position in life. So there are some things, attitudinal-wise, that I am more susceptible to than you might be. And certainly this is a good connection here. 
that though we all must guard against arrogance and not be high-minded and think on things of lowly nature, it can be especially problematic to be a humble person if you are a wealthy person, that physical resources could get in the way. And money, I think, has as well an associated attitude that comes along with it. Don't miss that point. That when, when, both when Jesus and when the apostles speak about the aspect of the danger of wealth, they always attach it to the aspect of an attitude and a frame of mind. Because the problem is not just that I possess things, but the attitude that that creates or that ultimately brought that about or that I live by in the world perspective that I will live by as a result of the fact that I possess things. And so it can be a problem sometimes with rich folks or people that have possessions to feel that they are, you see, better than others and to put others aside and to, you see, look down on other individuals because they don't have what I possess. That money itself and the possession of wealth, particularly among those who do not have as much as I might have, can create a value system that's absolutely contradictory to what the Bible has for the Christian, to the spiritual value system by which I look at other people. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, we may have some... Uh, I've already got it up there, won't I? Uh, a passage we may look at a little bit later as we explore the second half of this passage. Paul says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble, and not do wise in your own opinion. The NIV rendering says, Do not be proud, but willing to associate with people of low position. You know who those folks are, don't you? In our society, in terms of the social... Uh, the social uh, the structure that we have that exists in nearly every society. People of low position are the people that don't have as much as the people of high position. It has to do with this aspect of possessions and money. It kind of flows from that. And sometimes it affects how we treat one another. When I was uh, growing up at, uh, in Cincinnati, we lived uh, on a dead-end street. And, uh, of course, I, as, all, as most of you know, I had three brothers, and so we always played together with the people, with the kids that were on the street, and there were several of them. And I may have told this story before. I forget things, remember? But, I, but about, uh, about three doors down on the other side, there was a young, fella, young boy named Harvey, and he was about our age. He may be uh, somewhere between my, my oldest brother and myself. And Harvey was a unique individual, fun little guy, fun to play with, but he had a unique position. His dad was a major distributor for one of the major toy companies. I think it was Mattel or somewhere. So we would go down, and he had a basement. We'd go down into Harvey's basement, and the walls were lined with toys, every kind of toy you could think of. Some of them in packages, some of them had been opened, but some of them were display models. But it was like walking into a toy store, and there you were in Harvey's basement, and Harvey was king. You see, he was king. Because he could tell you whether or not you could play with that toy or even pick it up. Oh, no, no, you got to be nice to Harvey. And we learned that real quick. you got to be nice to Harvey because of his basement. He had all this stuff in the basement. So you were nice to him. And if, and if you weren't nice to me, I'd tell Harvey on you that you weren't nice to me. It all flowed through him. It changed the dynamics of how we treat one another because he had stuff that we didn't have. And that's the way that works, doesn't it? What's fascinating about that, it wasn't Harvey's stuff at all. It was belonged to his father. It wasn't in his control at all. But he had it, and we thought he had it. Therefore, we treated one another differently and did him differently as a result of that. And so Jesus talks about this as well. 
that money can be deceitful and that it claims to give us value and identity, but this is a deception. We judge the value of others by whether or not they have money or they have been successful and whether or not they are acquiring things around them. James warned against Christians, you see, who would adopt this human value system even in the assembly of the services. When an individual would come in, you see, who was wearing gold and jewels and who was, who was decked out, he was, he, he was wealthy, that you take the poor guy and you put him in the back and you see and you move this guy up to the front and you give him the choice seat because he's more valuable than the other fellow. And James warned against all of that in James chapter 2. He says you become judges with evil thoughts and you commit sin and you transgress of the law because you allow the value system of the world to determine how you treat one another. Now I'll say this up front. That exists in our society to the nth degree. And we need to protect our children from this deceptive value system. And education is good, and it's a good thing to make a comfortable salary and to be successful financially in this world. That's all a blessing. But it cannot and must not define us as to who we are. And we can't allow that system to change how we treat one another. Our identity must be in Christ. And it's the identity in Christ that makes us all equal that provides for us the platform from which we can treat one another with respect in every degree because we are equal. We are all one in Christ. But see, it's difficult to be rich and humble if the pursuit, the original pursuit of those things that you now possess was fueled by selfishness, that you got what you got because you put yourself first. And sometimes people seek more money, not simply so they can have more money, but so they can think of themselves differently than they think of others. So why do I want this stuff? So I can drive a better car than you. So I can have a bigger house than you. So I can go on more elaborate vacations than you go on so that I can, you see, keep up. The world's value system supports this thinking. And tells us that if you have these things, and that's who James is talking about, those who already possess these things, if you have these things, then you deserve to have them and you have to display the symbols by which you have them. I remember one time I came to services with a shirt on and had a little guy riding a horse with a stick in his hand on it. I came to learn that was polo. And I, it was just a thing on my shirt and that brother come up to me you know, he said you need to be careful about wearing that shirt he said that tells everybody you got way too much money than you're supposed to have as a preacher because you got because you got a polo in your shirt at all I say okay well I got it at the thrift store <laughs> so I don't know what it tells anybody about it but the fact that he would point out the status symbol on my shirt was indicative of a value system that we are all influenced by and that we all judge others by and so what does Paul say? He says, tell them not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches. The word trust here is elpizo. comes from a word which means to expect. It's also translated by the word hope. And it puts in the perspective the idea that when we have possessions, we tend to expect things from those possessions. That we expect something from our money. What do you hope for from the standpoint of the gathering of physical possessions? Let me ask a question related to that. In terms of what the Apostle commands here, why shouldn't you trust in riches? Why is that the wrong thing to do? I'll give you two reasons from the text. One obvious, maybe one not so obvious. The first obvious is because they are uncertain. Paul says don't trust in uncertain riches. Why? Well, because they're uncertain. Because as soon as you get them, they can leave. They will fail you. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells a parable the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. He thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? 
I will do this, I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you, and whose things will these be whom you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The successful man was not a fool because he thought of the future. He was not a fool because he didn't think of the future. He wasn't a fool because, you see, he wanted to be prepared. He wasn't a fool because he was ambitious. He was a fool because he trusted his future to that which could not secure it. Now that's foolish, isn't it? To put your trust in something that can't fulfill what you hope it will fulfill. To put your expectation in something that will not give you what you expect. He thought because he had many goods laid up for many years that he was secure. But he was not. We easily and also, and I think almost naturally adopt this deceptive thinking about the money in our own lives and about our own possessions. We even call them that, don't we? We call them securities. <laughs> That's what we call them because we think that if we get this money in the bank, repair these things, and we'll be ready for the future, we'll be secure. Proverbs, the 11th chapter, verse 29. Whoever trusts in his riches will, f- will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. The 23rd chapter, cast but a glance at the riches and they are gone, for they will certainly sprout wings and fly off like an eagle. They'll be gone. They're not there anymore. Jesus said treasures on earth are destroyed by moth and rust and thieves break through and steal. That the more you get, the more you have to worry about someone who wants to take it from you. That there is always an anxiety naturally associated with the aspect of the possession of wealth and things. So what do you do when you have expensive jewelry, when you have a coin collection, when you have guns that everybody wants? Well, you buy a safe, you lock it up, you hide it. Because you see, you know from the very standpoint that though those things have monetary value, they in terms of their ability to provide what you expect have absolutely no security. You have to provide the security for those things that you've trusted for your own security. So Jesus says, don't trust in those things. Now that's the obvious, isn't it? You should not trust in money because money won't always be there. And you put things aside and that might very well turn around on you and you have nothing. But there's another reason in the text I would present to you that I think is just as powerful and maybe even more pertinent to the discussion from a spiritual perspective. And that is, you see, that we must not trust must trust in the certain must trust in uh, must not trust in uncertain riches, but trust in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. The second reason we should not trust in riches is because God is the one who gave them to us. You see, just like Harvey and his toys, they weren't really his toys at all. They were only at his disposal at the good graces of his father. And there were times when his father would lock the door. You see, and then Harvey Lewis lost all his power because now he couldn't get in either. It was all up, you see, to the graciousness of the father. 
And this is where Paul's counsel to rich people, and that's you and I, becomes very practical. If we have wealth, we soon learn to rely upon it, that it becomes the basis by which we guide our lives. And what we really do in doing that, when we rely upon physical things, is we fail to rely upon God. We replace God and the reliance and the faith we ought to have in Him with the reliance upon physical things. To put your trust in the gift rather than the one who gives the gift to you corrupts the whole process. In fact, you look at the Old Testament and one of the principles of, the Old Te- of God's relationship with Israel was to teach him this aspect of absolute faith and dependency upon him rather than the things of their own life or specifically upon the aspect of the gods of the nations around them. And if there was any lesson that Israel was to learn in the wilderness, it was that God was the one who was providing that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Moses told them. That this is true reliance. And that if you take the gift and you put your reliance upon the gift, rather than one who gave you the gift, you are an idolater at heart. That was the corrupt nature of idolatry. When individuals learn to put their reliance upon the gift itself rather than to focus on the one who actually gave the gift. Now, It's powerful, I think, to see this argument in the text itself. Paul uses the word rich or riches three times in this verse. He uses it even one more time in verse 18. The word is posios, which literally means abundantly or copiously. It means that something is given beyond measure. In terms of the noun itself, it means to have something in an abundance. To do something richly means to do it with an abundance. And so Paul uses the terminology, the same word three times here, to make his point. Command those who are rich in this present age to not be haughty, nor to to trust in the uncertain riches, but in the living God who gave us richly all things to enjoy. What's Paul saying? The rich or the wealthy people of the world have their riches because they've been richly given by God. So who's the one who has the riches? Who is the rich one? Who is the one who gives riches, controls riches, is sovereign over riches, is rich himself? It ain't us. And it's not even the most powerful people in this planet who have all the resources of the world at their disposal. They receive those riches from a rich God and they receive them richly from God. And that's Paul's point, is it not? That Paul's point is that we should not trust in riches as unreliable as they are because God is the true source of what we have and He's the only one that truly is reliable in the process. He is the giver. The implication is you can't put your trust in both at the same time. That you can't trust in the things of this world and the riches of this world and trust in God at the same time. Now we try that. We come and we say, yeah, we trust God. We love God. We know God. We thank God for what He gives us. And then we go out and work ourselves to death trying to gain things so that we can have some security and rely upon the things that we have. And what the, what the implication of the biblical teaching in this is over and over again is that's not only a moral, but implicitly a physical impossibility. That you cannot serve God and mammon. That's what Jesus says. You cannot serve God and mammon. You will love the one, despise the other. You'll love the one, hate the other. You will abandon one and put your trust in the other. 
So that's what we see of people that truly trust in God are willing to abandon their riches. And those you see like the rich young ruler who put their trust in physical things would abandon God. Because you can't do both. You might also notice that Paul says that we should trust in the living God. That terminology is not, I don't believe there is, by, is there by accident. It's rooted in the Old Testament Scripture to speak about God as being the living God. Where the true God who is living, you see, is contrasted with the false gods that were worshipped by the pagans. Those dead inanimate objects that they would place, the idols, those idols were dead, but God was a living God. And so over and over again the Old Testament Scriptures talk about God being the living God. But there's another way to look at that, not only, from the, not only conceptually, but even... Grammatically, and that is God is a living God because God is the one who gives life. He is the only source of life, is He not? He is the living God because He provides the things not only that are essential for spiritual life, but our physical life as well. Everything comes from Him. Now there's severe implications to that in terms of our relationship to our money and our wealth, but as well in terms of our spiritual reliance upon God. When Jesus' followers were clamoring for more physical bread, when they thought, if we find a guy that can make bread out of nothing and can give it to everybody and have stuff left over, this is the fellow we want to be king. And in John chapter 6, when Jesus fed the 5,000, they clamored over what he provided and they wanted to force him to be king. They chased him all the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus confronted them there, he told them, You follow me because your stomachs are filled and not because of the signs that you've seen. But then he says in chapter 6 verse 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set a seal on it. You see, God's giving again. God's the one who has it. God's the one who possesses it. And He gives it to those who do not labor for the food that perishes. If you labor for the food that perishes, you're going to miss out on the food that doesn't. And so Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's why it's foolishness to put your trust in uncertain riches. Don't allow the riches that you have, however you might judge them, whether you think you got a lot or you think you got nothing, don't allow the things you possess to get in the way of truly being rich. And that's what I want to talk a little bit about the Lord willing tonight. Luke chapter 16, verse 9, Jesus says, Therefore, if you have been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? In a story, in a parable about the aspect of proper stewardship, Jesus makes this salient point. God's watching how you deal with the little stuff. What's the little stuff? The little stuff is the wealth of this world. It's the riches. It's what's in your bank account and what's in Bill Gates' bank account. That's the little stuff. That's not the big stuff. And how we treat the little stuff will determine whether or not God will commit to our trust the true riches. The spiritual riches that God provides through Christ will never fail us. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, one of the most paradoxical passages in the Scriptures, Paul says, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might become rich. Now I can't understand that verse if I'm going to define riches the same way all the way through it, can I? Because Jesus has never been poor from the standpoint of not having access to anything or not being able to feed himself or not having the physical riches available to him. But he came to this earth and lived as a physically poor man that he might provide for us 
Not physical riches, but spiritual riches. And it's obvious that Paul's not talking about the unreliable physical riches when he says that Jesus came and became poor that you might become rich. But he's talking about the spiritual riches of being a child of God, a fellow heir with Christ. The blessings that are even described in the very language that you and I understand so well of things that are valuable in the physical world that have higher value than anything that's physical in the spiritual world. They are true riches. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. And later on in chapter 2 he says there, Even when we were dead and trespasses, made it, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Pluosis, abundant, copious, more than you ever need. It is the riches of His grace. If you're a Christian, you're rich. You are rich. Beyond any estimation the world could ever place upon it, or any value system that this world could devise that could ever assess it, the Christian is rich in the grace of Jesus Christ. And the inheritance that lies before them is far and above glorious above anything that you and I could ever possess here in this world. Don't put your trust in uncertain riches. Put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the riches that have made known, the glorious inheritance provided through His death on the cross. Put your trust in Him. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Will you be a Christian? May we help you even this, this, this morning. While we stand and while we stand.